grab a seat. Hey, welcome again to Bethany, West Seattle. My name is Prentice. I get the privilege to be the pastor here. Uh, One thing that you may not know is that the reason why you may not see some of your friends that are normally here is that we have planted people at home to watch the Seahawks and pray for them, the Hawks. So that way we, uh, as a community of Seattle, may have a victory today. So may God's will uh, be done. And so uh, another thing that you may not know is that Bethany West Seattle, and Bethany in general, uh, we are part of uh, a larger community. uh, And collectively, we serve different uh, people, not just individuals, but organizations. Uh, and one of the organizations that we're so excited to work with and continue to work with, because we have been for uh, several years now, uh, is, is Young Life, particularly Young Life in West Seattle. Those of you, anyone ever heard of Young Life? Okay, yes, there's a, there's a lot of people, a lot of lives have been changed uh, in and through Young Life, mine being one of them. If it wasn't for Young Life, I say I wouldn't be here this morning today uh, as your pastor, and so I'm so grateful for the work of Young Life. And so uh, with that said, I'm going to invite just real quick uh, to highlight uh, the, some of the things that are happening, and I'm going to actually invite... Uh, my friend, and I would say colleague in ministry, Dom, who is the area director for Young Life in West Seattle, who's been working tirelessly to, to serve our students here, our young people. Uh, and I will say this, in my experience uh, with Young Life, uh, particularly uh, area directors and, and leaders at that, is that their personality is like, and I say this in the most loving way, is just super in your face borderline obnoxious because kids respond to that and it's amazing. Uh, But Dom is a little bit of a different kind of area director, which I've learned to appreciate very much, where it's more about empowering leaders and watching them thrive and serve and to love students, uh, and the fruit has been shown. And so uh, let's welcome Dom to the stage real quick to share a little bit about Young Life. So uh, Young Life, it has a program. Tell us about the program real quick. Yeah, so the, uh, the mission statement of Young Life is to introduce adolescents to Jesus and help them grow in their faith. Uh, we do so in West Seattle by way of imploring volunteers, uh, we call them volunteer leaders, to build relationships with high school and middle school students in the area. So we've got some coaches, or we've got some leaders that are basketball coaches or coach different sports. Um, leaders that go in and TA and science classes. It's all about finding ways to build relationships with high school and middle school kids. Yeah. And you guys have like a weekly program. So give us a day in the life of a Monday night high school program. Yeah. So a lot of our leaders actually are students at UW or SPU and some live locally. But basically, um, our leaders will get off of work, get out of school, drive to West Seattle. Uh, We go down to Chief South at 6 o'clock and pick up kids. And then we have students from Chief South and West Seattle come to Trinity, West Seattle, where we hold our Monday night club. So what's unique about our club to others is that we try to be more holistic in the way that we care for kids. So every Monday night starts with a meal, um, starts with dinner for kids, and then we'll play some crazy games. We'll get kids up front. Um, We'll just... It's kind of wild. If you come in midway through club, you'll be like, what is this? What's going on? <laughs> um, but we try to get kids out of their comfort zone a little bit. And then one of the leaders will get up and will share the gospel with kids. And then we're driving them back home all around the greater Seattle area. Yeah, I'm going to put you on the spot for a second. I know that you've been involved with Young Life in different regions uh, and areas. And, and I have too. What would you say is unique to particularly the community of, in the neighborhood of West Seattle and, and the students 
that live here? Yeah, I would say that um, obviously it's a much more unique community. I would say the North End, West Seattle High School, it's more of a traditional high school, which is great. Um, Chief Self is 71% low income, 69% not white. And you just see different challenges and obstacles with some of those students. So we try to be more holistic with how we care for those kids, for sure. Yeah. And so club and program just started this year. Uh, I would say, what is, or ask, what is, if you can define, like, just one big hope for this coming school year, what would that be? Yeah, we've seen pretty strong growth over the last year. I would say two summers ago, so kind of the pinnacle of what we do is we take kids to camp during the summer. Uh, They get a week without their phones, and they get to hear the gospel all the way through. Um, Two summers ago, we took about 40 students between high school and middle school. Um, This past year, we took over 100 kids between middle school and high school. Um, On Monday night clubs, last year we would have anywhere from 20 to 35 kids. Our first club last month had more than 70 kids show up. So I would say that- That's something to give thanks to God for, for sure. So I would say that, man, my hope would be that we would continue to create structure and have things in place that we could really care for those kids well. Um, The hope and the goal isn't always numbers, but when kids do show up, we wanna be able to provide for them. So my hope would be that we would continue to partner with people in the community, with churches, with people like you, and that we would continue to be a safe space for kids to explore what faith might look like. Yeah. Uh, and with that said, uh, I, I'm thinking about just top of my brain, there's something happening in the next week or so, right? Yeah. Okay, tell us more about that. <laughs> so on Thursday, November 7th, we have our yearly banquet. We do two events. We do a banquet and an auction. Uh, we've got a banquet on November 7th at 6.30. It's going to be at Our Lady of Guadalupe. Uh, the hope would be that it would be a chance for us as Young Life folks to, to get to update you on what the last year of ministry has looked like. You'll get to see kids up front share their story. There will be some crazy fun happening. There will be a dinner, an amazing dinner. Um, there will be wine, all the things that you could ever want. Um, and so I'm there. <laughs> Our hope is that you would come, that you would join us, that you would hear about what's happening locally, that you would maybe find a way to get involved, um, and then we've got a financial goal that we'd like to hit so that we can continue to do ministry in West Seattle. So I know that Bethany and Prentice will be hosting a table. There are a few folks here, too. So there's a couple ways that you can sign up for that. You can simply go to westseattle.younglife.org, westseattle.younglife.org, and just click on the banquet, and you can register there. Or you can talk to Prentice and figure out a way to, to just get in on one of their tables. Yeah, so we, there's already a table that's full. We have another table that's open. Uh, it's first come, first serve basis. Be our guest. If you, if you want to be a part of that, uh, meet somebody, myself or someone uh, from our team at the Connect table at the end of the service, uh, and we'll get you connected. So um, again, this is a great opportunity to learn more about Young Life, to, to contribute, not just financially, but with prayers and support. Uh, And so with that said, let us pray. Let me pray for Dom and Young Life uh, right now. Pray with me. God, we thank you that there is Young Life, that you've created that and you've placed leaders strategically uh, within the organization to share your gospel. So God, we thank you for the work of Dom and his faithful leaders uh, that continue just tirelessly serve and and just give and sacrifice of their time and resources to these students uh, that may be so far from you. And so, God, we know that we work together as a team, that uh, we can't do it alone. Not even Bethany Masia, we can't do it alone. And so we're so thankful uh, for Young Life to reach the students that we can never reach. And so, God, we just ask that you would bring people to this banquet so they may hear the story of what you're doing uh, in their Young Life and continue to, reach them, to bless them richly. Uh, in your name we pray. 
Amen. Let's give him another round of applause. Thank you. All right, so now is the time for you to meet one another. Will you just stand? Will you say hi to one another? Uh, kiddos, you're, you're able to go downstairs. Somehow you, you'll make it. You know, born and raised in an alcoholic household, dad, dad's dad, that kind of thing. I told myself I'd never be my father. And then just one day, I became him. I'm not sure if you've ever been in those situations where you're trying to solve a problem, but you haven't yet admitted to yourself what the problem is to solve. But I was sitting at the English pub in Portland, Moon and Sixpence. One of my buddies said to me, he goes, Craig, you're never this quiet, and you're still on your first beer. And then out of my mouth came, I'm an alcoholic, I need to quit drinking. Imagine that being said out loud in an English pub, you know, at six o'clock at night. I called my dad, who'd been in and out of sobriety, and this time he was sober about four years. And he goes, go to a meeting. And I was like, oh, okay. And the topic was God. (laughs) I had turned my back uh, on Christianity um, when I was about 20, 21 years old. But I I just said, I'm willing to do whatever it takes to stay sober. If that means I've got to have a conversation with God again, then so be it. And so for the first time in 17, 18 years, I said the serenity prayer with uh, the folks there. My mom happened to live very close to this church that my sister wanted to go to because this uh, famous author used to go there. My prejudices were still live and well. I, I sat down and I'm prepared to hear the rules again. And I'm ready to hear how uh, God's unhappy with you when you do X or when you don't do X. The professor from only University talked about God in a loving and caring manner in such a way that I was just taken aback. I, I hadn't guess I hadn't heard that before. It was not until a song was sang, Come Thou Fount, it just, it broke the dam. For the first time ever, I felt, well, I wasn't ashamed of myself. I don't know what the tears were coming from. Uh, the only thing I can crack those up to is, is that that was joy of having a relationship with, uh, with Christ again. It was instantaneous um, that he just welcomed me back in. That was, again, that was a little over seven years ago, and then I got baptized. 
Like most people, when I got baptized, I expected everything to be, hey, now I'm one of the chosen, but I'm going to be free from all my iniquities, and, and that's not been the case. It's just been a struggle. But I realized that not only is my life not my own, my sobriety is not my own, like my freedom is not my own. It's been made for me to share it, right? I was made for service. That's what's been missing from my joy when I'm giving away whatever I have. All right, well, this morning we continue our series on portraits, representing Christ. Uh, and I'm, I really love uh, this sermon series because it gives us an opportunity as a church to do literally just that, to represent what Christ and who Christ is and what Christianity might look like, uh, contrary to how the name of Christ and the faith and the church uh, has been hijacked. And, and, and sometimes, if we're being honest, uh, much of it is true and for good reason, uh, but I want to, in the church, in this series, is all about kind of taking it back, taking back the definition of who Christ is uh, and what the church and who the church uh, is for. And so again, uh, we continue this series called Representing Christ. And I hope that this morning, as we talk about another caricature of Christ, uh, that we may be able to get it fresh or anew or rediscover who Christ is. And so, again, for the, for the weeks on, uh, it's been about particular distortions of Jesus. Uh, like distortion number one happens to be about this us versus them. Christianity is all about us versus them. Well, that's not true. And we've unpacked that. Christianity is about, uh, you know, these rules and regulations, but really it's not about that. It's about great to love and relationship, and so we've been unpacking that. Uh, And this morning, uh, I get to continue by talking about this caricature of God, that God is just continuously and constantly anti-something, particularly anti-pleasure. It's almost as if, and the early church fathers have believed this too, if it feels good, if it feels good, it must be wrong. And for a lot of us, we think that way about God too, that God is anti-fun, that God is anti-pleasure, that uh, the gifts in our lives and the pleasures of our lives, whether it be food, drink, sex, alcohol, money, vocation, career, whatever it is, there are oftentimes these are gifts from God that we have taken and hijacked and perverted uh, to make it something destructive. But we want to clear up this morning that God is not anti-pleasure, anti-fun, anti-gifts that God gives us. And so this morning, uh, our reading comes from James chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 1. Uh, and the word of the Lord uh, says this. You could either read along uh, or you can uh, read on the board. If you, uh, to the people in the back, if you just clear it, then we'll clear the background here. Thank you. All right, James chapter 1, the word of the Lord says this. Don't be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. Verse 18, he chose to give us birth through the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. 
Let me pray. God, thank you that you have given us your word. You've given us your promises. You've given us gifts. And forgive us for the ways that we've distorted your gifts for our own selfish ambitions and our own pleasures and taking it out of the way that you've intended it to be then only causing destruction and pain and sorrow in our lives. When the reality is you want joy for us, you want life, you want pleasure for us. We thank you for that. In your name we pray. Amen and amen. Well, for those of you that uh, don't know, uh, this is my first time preaching, probably in about a month now, uh, and, and it's so good to be back uh, here teaching. Uh, I just got married to, to Maria, and we, yeah, thank you. I know I'm not just like fishing for like woos and all those things, uh, but all I'd say is the reason why I haven't been here, we went on a honeymoon, we went to Indonesia uh, for a couple weeks, and, and for some reason, I like to call it Indonesia, because it sounds a little less bougie than Bali, because the reality is we went to Bali, and it was amazing, uh, and it's a privileged thing to say, but if you have an opportunity, you should go, uh, and so for that reason, I haven't been here for a while, and, and it's been amazing just kind of focusing on our marriage and, and learning, continuing to learn more about each other, and, and as I was preparing this, I couldn't help but to think of uh, some of our earliest dating interactions. Our, uh, some would say conflict, I would say uh, discussions, uh, and learning more about each other. Uh, and I remember one of our earliest, if not our first, maybe conflict or discussions that we've had uh, in learning about each other, uh, was when we went to the grocery store. Now, many of you know that particularly in a romantic or dating relationship, uh, that something very intimate that uh, the two might do uh, is cook at home and go grocery shopping for the food, right? Like, I know that that might sound weird to you, but there's something intimate about the act of going grocery shopping together uh, to, to buy the food and, and to prepare it uh, to eat lunch or dinner or whatever it is uh, together, and so we went to the grocery store, and we were in the produce aisle, and we were just, you know, looking around, and I was looking at her, because she's so beautiful, and it's so hard to not look at her, and, and, and what I noticed is that she walks by these grapes, and we had this conversation, I asked her for permission, and, and side note, I always ask her for permission, oftentimes she'll say, surprise me, and so she might regret this one. Uh, so, okay, we were walking around the produce aisle, and she looks at the grapes. I know she loves grapes. She eats a grape. I'm like, okay, you're, you're sampling. You want to see if it's fresh. You want to see if it's good. So she eats the grapes, and lo and behold, then she walks on. And, and I don't know about you, but I was a little appalled. Like, <laughs> you just ate a grape. You didn't pay for it. You didn't, you didn't even consider purchasing it. You just ate the grape and walked on. And the person that I am, who just cannot stand injustice, never do what I just did, I go up to her and I said, did you just steal? And she was like, no, I was just trying a grape. And I said, no, no, you weren't even thinking about buying it. You just ate the grape and walked on. I would, uh, there was a little bit more grace if it was like, okay, I'm just testing it out and perhaps I may 
buy it. But, but no, it was just, I just simply wanted to eat a grape. And, I, and my response was, that is called stealing. And so we went up to the register. I don't even know why I did this. Uh, fortunately, she forgives me. I go up to the cashier. And I say, hypothetically speaking, cashier, uh, if I have a friend who happened to take a grape, uh, is that okay? And her response is, no, she would go to jail. Like, that is what she said. And I said, noted. And so we walked on. And I remember the response that she gave to me, and oftentimes there are adjectives that still describe me from her, is, you're so uptight, you're so rigid, you're, so, you're no fun, you don't like to be social, like, and I'm not saying these are false, I'm just saying that perhaps my definition of fun or other things is different. For example, we were talking about Bali and kind of debriefing, and we were talking about what was your favorite moment uh, in Bali, and, I, and we shared, and, and she said it was ATVing, she says going to the waterfalls, going to the beach clubs, whatever it is. Wow, we sound so bougie right now. Okay, so we did all those things, and I said out of all those things, my most favorite memory uh, of Bali, uh, Indonesia, is going to what was called Potato Head Beach and swimming in the Indian Ocean. It was beautiful, it was majestic, it was warm, it was great. And her response was, but you were all by yourself. Like there was literally no one in sight of the entire ocean where we were at, and you were all by yourself. And I said, exactly, that was the best part, it was amazing. And her response again was, I wasn't even with you. (laughs) It was just different. But I look at these words, like, you're so uptight, you're so rigid, you don't like to have fun, you like to be alone, and and be that as it may, these are actually words that oftentimes describe our Christian faith, God, the church, and I would say it's a false caricature of who God is and what God intended it to be. These words are so commonly associated with our faith that it is no wonder, no wonder that people are leaving the church in droves especially today with our young people. The church has become uh, not only what we are for and who we love and what we're about and who we want to pursue, but it, for some reason, has overtly become very uh, voiceless about not only who, are, who we are for, but who we are, who we are against, what we are against. The people group that we hate, the people that uh, we don't want to be associated with. We have become a people uh, of not the things that we are for, but everything we are against. And so, again, it's no wonder people are leaving the church in droves. Uptight, rigid, no fun, legalistic, anti-pleasure. And one of the most recent Barna Institute studies says this. It's a group that does a lot of research, especially around faith and church and culture. It says the church has faced consistent struggles over the past centuries. And one particular struggle may cause a future epidemic. Research indicates millennials, individuals uh, ages between 22 and 37, this was written in 2018, have been leaving the church in alarming numbers. One study shows 59% of millennials raised in the church have already left. If you count those that wouldn't identify as millennials, they have left as well. So that number is 
is alarmingly high. Because people, the message that they hear is God is anti-pleasure. God is anti-fun. God is anti-anything that feels good. And, and, And so when people feel that, it gets worse. There comes a huge pendulum swing. If our faith presents a God that is so anti-pleasure, anti-fun, and and rigid, and all those things, the culture will oftentimes offer something that is more attractive, more appealing. And, And the more attractive message than this false message of God being so anti everything is a message of do whatever you want. Do whatever you want in the litmus test if this is okay or not or moral or ethical or not is how it makes you feel. And so oftentimes we say, if it feels good, then do it. And I would say uh, on the behalf of the church, that is one of the worst advice you can ever receive. But it's a pendulum shift. Of course, that is going to be the message. If the message is so commonly God is against everything, the culture and the world is going to offer something much more appealing. In fact, if God is anti-everything, come over here and believe that the message is do whatever you want. Isn't that better? And most of us would say, yes, it is. And the litmus test to what is good and what is right, what is beautiful, is how does it make you feel? If it feels good, then yes, go for it. You can call it New Age, you can call it atheism, you can call it post-modernity, you can call it humanism, we can call it whatever you want. But hopefully, what we'll see in just a moment is that this is only a caricature of God, and in fact, hear this from me, God created, God is the author of pleasure. It's a gift. And God invites us to find pleasure in it, to find enjoyment in it in those gifts, to steward it, to rule over it, to have dominion over it. But again, the problem becomes when when we oftentimes take God's gift and blessings and pleasures in our lives and we turn it from pleasure to perversion. And we see this time and time again, that we often take God's gifts and pleasures in our lives for us to enjoy things and people that we're supposed to enjoy and to steward and to take care of has become the very things that we've perverted, which causes pain, and everything that God didn't want to be. So God isn't the enemy of pleasure. No, God is not the enemy of pleasure. God is the author of it. Again, you can fill in whatever that pleasure might be for you. Food, sex, money, relationships, influence, vocation, material possessions. These are all gifts meant for us to be enjoyed, to steward. But time and time again, we do a great job of messing up what God has intended something to be. Now what we've read is is this, every good and perfect gift is from above. Every good, these are all good and perfect gifts from above. Now, the NIV says every good and perfect gift is from above. The NRSV, though, says this the same exact verse every generous act of giving with every perfect gift is from above. There's a little bit of a nuance here I don't want you to miss. 
The NIV doesn't do a jo- uh, as good of a job as the NRSV, I-, I believe. The NRSV kind of points to the heart of what James is trying to say. Every good and perfect gift is from above. We've all heard it. This is good. This is biblical. But what I want us to understand is this whole sentence in the original Greek, in the original language, was never meant to be one statement about particular gifts. It's never about one, it was never meant to be one statement. As a matter of fact, it's supposed to be very vividly and distinctively two separate statements about God. So, so the NIV, uh, every good and perfect gift, uh, is surrounded by just one thing, one gift. That's kind of the idea. That's where our mind goes. But the NRSV, I think, does a little, bit, be, a little bit of a better job of separating two actions or two things that the author is trying to say. Statement number one is about giving. Dosis is a Greek word. Statement number two is about the actual gift, dormea. It's very distinct in the Greek, saying that there's two things happening when it comes to the perfect gift. It's not just one good and perfect gift. I want you to, what James is saying is, understand there's two ideas. There is a giver. I do not want you to forget that there's a giver of this gift. So that's statement number one. Do not forget about the giver, the author, the inventor of this gift. Secondly, that gift by which the giver gives is perfect. It's perfect. So there's a generous act of giving, and what is given is a perfect gift from God. We can't miss this when we read James chapter 1. It's a separate and two distinctions, the the giver and what is given, the who and the what. Then it says, coming down, these gifts, this good and perfect gift, the giver gives this perfect gift, and where does that gift come, come from? It comes from the Father of Lights. That's a Father of Lights. What does that mean? Now, remember, James was a Jewish writer, writing to a Jewish context, Jewish audience, and using language and idioms that they would completely understand. Not only understand, but find hope in. The giver of the perfect gifts is one who created the light. So who is this giver that gives a perfect gift? Well, it's none other than the same God, the same person who created, who invented the light. And what we'll see is that this is a huge and obvious nod to Genesis chapter 1, the creation narrative, where God literally says, let there be light. And God created light, the sun, and everything under the sun. So then who is this giver who gives a perfect gift? It's none other than the God who created the lights all the way from the beginning, who created the whole universe and everything in it. That is who we should be receiving from. And so light is something good. God said, let there be light. There was creation. There was light. Creation, it says, it was good. All over scripture, light, good, is seen, to, is seen as a force that drives out darkness, bad. Light is seen as wisdom. Jesus refers to himself as the light. One Jewish rabbi uh, puts it this way. Fundamentally, light does not belong to this world. Rather, it is an emanation of a different essence from the other side of reality. Light serves as the symbol of good and the beautiful and all that is positive. All that is good and all that is positive. So every good and perfect gift comes from God who created the universe. 
who created the lights. So if this God is the giver and creator of light, then all the gifts are meant to create goodness and beauty and positivity and life. And we've all experienced that in our lives. Again, money, relationships, food, sex, possessions. We've all experienced the goodness of it. Now, with that said, as God created all these good and perfect gifts, there's what theologians would call the cultural mandate found, again, in Genesis 1.28. So God created light, so everything good, and God says, here, it's yours. Take care of it. Enjoy it. Find pleasure in it. But here's the mandate. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over it, the gifts, the pleasures, the things I give you. God says, enjoy it, rule over it, rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Again, you have to understand God's heart here, rule to rule, to have authority over it, is to steward, is to love, is to sacrifice for, is to give to. It's not domination, it's not abuse, it's not manipulative. It's love, it's stewardship. So essentially, God is saying, all that I've created, all these perfect gifts, is yours. Enjoy it. Find pleasure in it. Take care of it. Rule over it. Now, what does this have to do with us? Again, think about your pleasures in your life. Again, job, notoriety, sex, intimacy, fashion, clothing, possessions, food, drink, your body, your hobbies even. These are all gifts from God. God wants you to enjoy these things. It's a blessing. Give thanks. Receive it. Name it. Own it. Don't find shame in it. These are gifts from God for us to enjoy and to use as a tool to honor God and to serve others. Now, how it affects us is that we see in Genesis chapter 3, there's been a role reversal. Now, there's been a role reversal. Stay with me now. Adam and Eve's sin starts not by eating of the fruit. So if you're new to the church, uh, Adam and Eve were told not to eat of the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and they did. But the disobedience of eating the fruit was just a byproduct of a bigger issue. What they said before that and what they've been convinced of is that the serpent says, if you eat this, you will know the difference between good and evil. You will be like God. So they wanted to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And in, the, in knowledge of good and evil, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was a Jewish expression of kingship, meaning only God, only king would know the difference between good and evil. That's what the tree represented. And so Adam and Eve were like, I want that. I want to be like God. I want the wisdom and the knowledge that only the king would have. I want to be God. And so they partook. When the creation order is out of sync, the definition of it in and of itself is idolatry. We want to be our own God. When this happens, the pleasures in our lives turn from being life-giving to life-taking. We experience a metaphorical death from it. The very things that we're supposed to rule over, we become, we become ruled by. 
the creation order is this. God is the giver of the perfect gifts, and we are supposed to enjoy it and find pleasure in it. What we've done is saying we want to become the giver. We want to become our own God. And everything gets out of whack. The very things that we're supposed to rule over are the very things that rule over us. And I would say this, that the tipping points, you may not see this, but there's lines, the tipping points between pleasure and perversion of gifts and pleasure is idolatry. Are the very things that you find pleasure in, again, name it, whatever it is, I underline the blank, whatever that is, do you rule over it or does it rule over you? And if it rules over you, that by definition is idolatry. Christopher Wright, one of my favorite writers, says this in The Mission of God. At the root, then, all idolatry is human rejection of the godness of God and the finality of God's moral authority. The fruit of, what base, the fruit of that basic rebellion is to be seen in many of the ways in which idolatry blurs the distinction between God and creation to the detriment of both. Basically what he's saying is, let God be God and know that you are not. And when we put ourselves in the God place, then everything gets out of whack. Food and drink is good, but when it becomes our God, it can lead to the destruction of our body. We become obsessed with our body image. It can result into addiction. Going back to sex, it can, it can be, it's meant for the context of marriage and joy between two people for intimacy and a gift, but when it becomes our God, it becomes exploitative. If it's done out of God's design of marriage, it can lead to all sorts of different issues. Many people have experienced that. It can be abusive. It can be dehumanizing. Money is good, but when, when, money, when we make money our God, it no longer becomes a stewardship issue. It becomes selfishness, ambition, ego. Career, job, these are all good things, but when it becomes our God, it can lead to addiction, cost of your family. Technology is a gift. I want to repeat that. It's a gift that God has given us, but when it becomes our God, it can cause anxiety, isolation. And when I say when these things becomes our God, I don't mean literally we get on our knees and we bow down and worship it. But instead what I mean is these are the things that we're supposed to rule over, but it rules over us. It has control over us. It becomes our king. This is the tipping point when the pleasures become perverted. You see, there's an order of creation and how things were designed to be. Again, God is the giver. That God uh, gives perfect gifts. And this God is a God of light, of goodness, and the gifts that we receive are meant to find pleasure and enjoyment and just fulfillment through. But again, when we mess up and we take God out of the pedestal, out of the giver, out of the author, and we put ourselves in it and we make other things God along with it, we decide who has control then things go so backwards and we've all experienced the heartache of when pleasures tip over to pain and sorrow. So I want to end with just three practices uh, and three ways we can represent Christ. Number one is this, practice spiritual disciplines. Uh, 
In John 15, 15, it says, I am the vine. You are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Remind yourself every day that God is God and that we are not. And sometimes that it's through different avenues, through prayer, through fasting, through reading of the scripture, through participating in a communal worship, through going on walks and just enjoying nature. I do something that oftentimes seems so trite is I like to pray before meals. Now, I'm not being uh, legalistic and say you need to pray before every meal, although that is a practice that could be good. Uh, But the reason why I do it is because at least three times or five times or how many times I eat, uh, or maybe once, which on a bad day, uh, it gives me an opportunity to just sit and just to say thank you. To say thank you. That what I'm about to eat literally gives me life, most of it at least. Some, some probably take away life. But some of the things that I eat gives and sustains me, and I say, thank you. And so what are the ways that every day in your lives that you can practice to remind yourself that you are not God, that God is God, and God needs to be in God's rightful place in order for us to enjoy the pleasures and the gifts and the blessing that God has given us and gives us. And part of that just means being uh, just desperately connected to God. And I would say the best way is to spiritual disciplines. Find what works for you that makes you and just compels you to just stay in sync with the Spirit of God. Practice number two is to embrace restraints. In order for us to experience the goodness and the pleasures of God in a way that God has intended it to be, sometimes, yes, that means we need to say no. And restraint is all over the scripture, even in the creation narrative. God says, all these things, it's for you. Enjoy it, find pleasure in it, love it, do it, be part of it, experience it. It's good, it's good for you. But don't do this. Don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Embrace restraint, it's okay. And we experience this every day of our lives. Maybe one donut is okay, but two, hey, maybe you should experience and give some restraint. I'm speaking to myself, particularly in that subject. Maybe calling is more important than money. And so you restrain from pursuing just money. Intimacy with anybody other, anybody else but your spouse is not good. We all know that. And restraint is needed. Not hurting, not insulting somebody always wins. But oftentimes that requires restraint. Not lashing out when you want to requires restraint. And oftentimes experiencing this restraint is antithetical to the message of the world, saying do whatever you want, do whatever feels good. And what I'm saying is in order to fully experience the pleasures of God and the gifts that you have been given, is sometimes in order to say yes, you have to say no. You have to say no. And I would say this, freedom, we all talk about freedom. I want to feel free, a.k.a. I want to feel alive. I want to feel contentment. I want to feel joy. Freedom is not the ability to do whatever you want. We feel like freedom is like, you know what? I can do whatever I want. I'm just going to do this and that. That's freedom. And I would say biblical understanding of freedom is not just the ability to do whatever you want. Freedom is the ability to not do whatever you want. 
Can you show the restraint? Can you not do even the very things you want to do that you know will cause destruction? And when you do that, when you, when you embrace the restraint, you can experience the goodness of God. And I want to say this, addiction is a real thing. And I would argue, and this is my theological understanding, is that God is not angry. God is brokenhearted with you, with your family, with your friends. And I would say God has placed people that can help and support you, even on a clinical and professional level. And if, if that's you, there's a list of therapists and support groups that we have. Please reach out to me or one of the staff, or somebody, just reach out to somebody, shed light in that dark area of your life. And I'll end with this. When we find restraint in order to experience something good, we have to find our yes. What is your yes? It's easy to find our no's, but whenever we find our no's, we need to find yes. And I would say, may your yes be the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. May we understand that is through the life, death, and resurrection that we are able to experience the goodness, the fruitfulness, the light of Christ. May we not take advantage of that. May we not just fall into the trap of just do whatever you want, do whatever you want, do whatever feels good, because eventually that road leads to pain and suffering and loss and sorrow. Sometimes restraint is needed in order to say yes to Christ and what Christ has for us. So as I invite the worship team back up, I want us to consider, does something have a grip on you? Are there things that have been placed in your life that you are supposed to enjoy, find pleasure in, to rule over? Is, are there things in our lives where those very things, the opposite is true. We don't rule over it, it rules over us. You can call it addiction. You can call it idolatry. You can call it a displaced priority. But are there things in your life that has a grip on you? May this morning, may we understand that, that, that God is God and that we are not. And God is the creator of all gifts for us to enjoy and to find pleasure in. And may we do that without shame or guilt, knowing, knowing and having confidence that it is from God. So God is not anti-pleasure. God is anti-pain. God is anti-perversion of these gifts. In fact, God wants you to find pleasure in the gifts that God gives you. May we be good stewards of it. May we rule over it. May we find joy in it without shame or guilt or believing in their lives. Let me pray. God, thank you for the ways that you've given to us. Forgive us for the ways that we have taken the very pleasures and gifts that you've put in our lives and perverted them by making it our God, which by definition is idolatry. Help us remember that you are God and we are not. Help us to have the power to re- to restrain from the things that are not of you and from you. Help us identify the things that are not of you and from you. 
and give us the power and the community and people to help us do that. We thank you in your name we pray. Amen and amen. Let's worship.